Missional communities kicking off, baby. Kids are back in school. Preach. Football started. Won't be long now. Won't be long now. Every year around this time, we get an awkward question from one of the sweetest people I know. Her name is Aunt Pam. She's my aunt. She's so sweet, smiley, happy, just, she's great. Love her. But every year, about mid-September, late September, we get this like really weird question. You ready? What do the kids want for Christmas? (laughs) And we're like, a little early, don't you think? See, as sweet as Aunt Pam is, and I emphasize sweet, you should meet her. She's great. She'll make you some cupcakes, a little decor on top, and smile as you eat it, right? But, but she's a planner, way more of a planner than I am, way more, which isn't saying much, but way more of a planner, and she's way out ahead of us when it comes to Christmas. It seems like mid-September... We shouldn't be talking about Christmas. Am I in in agreement with me here? Right. It seems out of season. What do the kids want for Christmas? Are you kidding me? It's middle of September. It's coming, though. You know it's coming. You might have just got it. Because, you know, she's thinking about this. She probably got her calendar mid-September. And yet today, here at Renovation Church, it's mid-September, and it's literally Christmas in September, right? It's not even the fall yet, technically, and here we are talking about Christmas. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> Today we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, and it's significant, uh, more so than we may admit or even realize. As we talked last week about how this distinct uh, lineage points to the identity of Jesus. In, this, in a similar way, uh, the birth of Jesus, how it happens, the conception of Jesus, also points to his identity. And so today, we're going to take a look at the birth of Jesus. Oftentimes, when we think about Christ's life and what we emphasize, we're going to talk about his life, we're going to talk about his death, we're going to talk about his resurrection, and it could easily uh, be just a a, a trivial, non-important thing to talk about his birth. But today we're going to see that his birth is essential. Understanding the way that he was born, and the way that he was conceived, rather, is essential to understanding Jesus' unique identity. So I want you to grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1, Remembering that this is Matthew's purpose. It's central to why he writes this gospel. He wants us to know Jesus. And today we're going to be looking, at least I'm going to attempt to look at something that we've heard and seen often and maybe add a, another layer of depth of understanding and, and so that you can understand even more why this is so significant today. I'm going to try to not muddy the waters at all. And so, to not do that, just, let's just keep the purpose at central, at the forefront. 
The author wants you to know Jesus. Wants you to know about Jesus. He's writing to reveal the the uniqueness of his identity. Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The birth of Jesus Christ happens in a way that we would least expect. Just generally speaking, taking a step back and looking at it from a 30,000 foot level, what's going on here? Just generally speaking, this goes against all of our expectations, right? And we don't need to go into the details about how this happens typically. But let's just say that it goes against all that we would expect about how a child is conceived and how a child comes to be and is born. But biologically for sure, right? We would not expect a virgin to be with child. That's what the text says, that his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, basically engaged, but in a much more uh, legally binding way, that before they came together, before they had any uh, relationship of a sexual orientation, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We would not expect a woman in her position, a virgin, to be expecting a child. It just goes against all of what we understand about how conception takes place. Right? At the end, we see verse 25, the text says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This shakes us to the core in terms of our understanding about how this works biologically. It goes against our expectations. It runs contrary to all biological and scientific expectations. Right? The virgin birth or the virgin conception, Don McLeod says, is blatantly supernatural. Blatantly supernatural. Defying our rationalism, right? Rationally, 
logically, biologically, this just does not happen ever. Some of you medical cats in the room, I see you. Doctors to be doctors, you know what I'm talking about. This just doesn't happen. Goes against the norm. It's a uh, a um, a defiance to our rationalism, as McLeod says, because it is a miraculous supernatural reality that we, especially in our culture today, are just not really inclined to think that way. Right? We're just logical, scientific, uh, just ob- observable facts kind of people. And this just runs contrary to it. So we wouldn't expect this. And naturally, while some of you may have some intense and odd dreams in the middle of the night, we would not expect a supernatural angelic announcement. Right? You see what happens. That Joseph, logically thinking biologically about the situation, sees that she's pregnant, and he concludes, well, there's only one way that that happens. And now the significance of that, as sorrowful and sad as it is, means that we're just we just can't can't get married. And so he resolves, being a just man but also a merciful man, to divorce her, to uh, end the uh, betrothal in a quiet way. But then, in the middle of the night, he's receives a dream that the Lord, an angel of the Lord, appears to him, verse 20, in a dream, and he tells him, Joseph, son of David, there it is again, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is sleeping, and an angel appears to him in a dream. That goes against every conceivable way in which we know birth pronouncements or announcements to take place. Right? Usually it goes like this. Pregnancy test, positive, doctor, yes, you're pregnant. Yay, that's how you find out, right? And then uh, Matthew clearly wasn't aware of Pinterest.com, right? He could, you can go to Pinterest and Google like, like 50 ways to announce someone's birth. And it might involve some sort of like little jersey, like your favorite team, like probably Steelers, as bad as they are, right? You got your Steelers jerseys on, then you have a little baby Steelers jersey, and then you post that on, on, on Instagram or something like that, right? Or maybe you have one of your other kids, you know, kind of going to be a brother, like check on a chalkboard, you know, one of those announcements. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, maybe you're uh, 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 one of those couples, you know, like the dual income, no kids couples, like Dinks, you ever heard of those? Dual income, no kids couples, you know what I'm talking about. Man, I say that with a little disgust because we never were there. Man, it would have been a helpful season, dual income, no kids. Man, if we were dual income, no kids, you imagine, right? We could have, we could have posted on Facebook, uh, and then there were three, you know, like, woo. Oh, man, that would have been cute. And you're thinking, yeah, well, your budget's going to change. Yeah, of course, right? <laughs> cute little pic of the ultrasound, right? That's a, a picture of a picture that no one can understand. Wow, that's awesome. Hipster millennials, I'll tell you. Can't we do better than this? I love you. I do it too. Just out of that season of my life. We were so boring, weren't we? You know? 
no Facebook, no Instagram. You wouldn't expect this. But the text says that this is what happened. This supernatural experience is taking place where an angel of the Lord is present in a dream and is revealing what is taking place. That this child is not typical. This child is not ordinary. This whole event is out of the box of our normal expectations because this child, this baby, is way beyond anyone else. It's a unique, one-of-a-kind conception because this is a unique, one-of-a-kind child from the Holy Spirit. These events are abnormal. They're bizarre to us. And and yet the way in which Jesus' birth takes place, it, it goes against every grain of expectation. And yet this way in which his conception takes place is telling us something about who he is. Something very important, as we're going to see in increasing measure throughout the rest of this message. This Jesus is very important. But it goes against all of our expectations. And yet at the same time, Matthew goes on to emphasize that while it goes against our expectations, naturally and biologically, the truth is, is that this has been promised. That this manner, the manner in which Christ is conceived and comes into the world, is consistent with the way that God promised. Right? He goes on to say, verse 22... All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah, 700 plus years prior. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's going on here? Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 7... You may or may not be aware of the context of what's going on there. But basically, this uh, uh, prophecy from Isaiah comes first to King Ahaz, right? King Ahaz was king, and uh, he was worried because two other nations' kings had come together to come siege Jerusalem, right? Uh, Rezin and Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Listen, never mess with a son of Remaliah. That's just first, right? So these two kings come together, and they're going to go take Jerusalem, and Ahaz is scared out of his mind, and rightly so, and then he decides, you know what? I know what to do. I'm going to call the Assyrians, and they're going to help us. They're going to come to our aid and protect us from Rezin and Pekah, because the son of Remaliah is freaking me out, right? So he devises this plan, but then Isaiah comes to him and says, listen, The plans, those plans that they have against you, they're not going to stand. The Lord's going to thwart those plans. So here's the deal. Ask God for a sign that this is true. And Ahaz, being the super spiritual guy that he is, says, Oh no, we don't ask God for signs. Right? He's going to use scripture against scripture to try to trick, right? But here's the hard issue with Ahaz. It's not that... He wants to be faithful. It's that he doesn't trust Yahweh. He doesn't trust his God. He trusts Assyria. He's not interested in a sign from God. He's interested in the superpower help 
of the Assyrians. So he says, no thanks, no sign. And then Isaiah comes in and he says, you know what? The Lord's going to give you a sign anyway. Here's what it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? That's what is happening there. That there will be a sign to him of God's presence. Emmanuel, God with us. There will be a sign for him that God is present with Ahaz. God is present with Israel, whether they want him to be or not. God is present. And in that moment, the sign tells them that God is present with them to bless or to judge, depending on their response of faith and their covenant loyalty to him. Sadly enough, they were not trusting of him. And so God is present in Ahaz's life to what? Judge him. God is present to judge him. And then what happens as Assyria comes? Assyria says, you know what? That wasn't a bad idea of Pekah and Rezin. Why don't we take up shop here? And the interesting twist is that the help that Ahaz called for became his nemesis. God is present to judge. But what we see taking place here is that Matthew is going back and looking back after the resurrection. He's writing the gospel story and he's reading Isaiah chapter 7 and he's saying, this prophecy is now fulfilled in this child. That the sign is now a reality. The thing signified is now present. Meaning, in this birth, God is present with his people to bless, as we're going to see. Right? God is present with his people. That, the, that, that this is taking place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. You're going to hear this often in Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses this fulfillment formula all the time throughout his gospel. Over 50 times uh, the Hebrew Bible is quoted in Matthew's gospel. This is why most people believe that Matthew's gospel was written for a Jewish audience to reinforce the fulfillment of all that God promised All their expectations are being met. God is being faithful to everything that he said he would do. So here's the point, though. After the resurrection, again, like I said, Matthew's reading his Bible. He's looking back on it, and he's saying, This birth of Christ, in this way, this virgin conception that is supernatural, that that shatters our expectations, this is that. All this is taking place to fulfill what the Lord had promised. God is acting. God is doing something supernatural that's outside of the realm of our normal, natural, biological expectations because He is indeed sending His Son into the world to be with us in order to bless us. And so we see that Jesus is not the sign, he is the thing that was signified, right? Jesus is Emmanuel. That's what the uh, writer of Matthew, that's what Matthew is trying to tell us, is that Jesus, in the way that he's born, telling us that he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God present in the world. 
Just like John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Just like John says that, Matthew says, guess what? Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. That's what Matthew is telling us. And in saying that, he is telling us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He has a divine nature. That's what it means that he comes from the Holy Spirit. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. It's to say that he is God. Not just a man. Not just a great teacher. Not just an example. But Jesus is God. It also says that Jesus is human. Born of a Virgin Mary. Jesus is God with us. Right? The word took on flesh. Became one of us. But make no mistake about it. He's God. And he's man. He's the God man. As Ethan alluded to already. It's a divine nature. Took on human flesh. He's not just a spirit. He's not a myth. He is a man. But he's God. That's what the virgin conception is telling us today. And also, very important, is it gets at Jesus' sinlessness. He's God, he's a man, and Jesus is sinless. Which means that, be, that due to the fact that he's born of the Holy Spirit, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he does not incur or he's not subject to the guilt of Adam that every one of us is subject to. He was not conceived in sin, with a sin nature. That is wonderful news for us, especially as we move forward in the passage to talk about why Jesus came into the world and why his name is Jesus. He's sinless. The Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy God, sinless, perfect. Blameless, not subject to Adam's guilt. As we know this from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we, for we do not know, for, I'm sorry, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, three very important words, yet without sin. He entered into our experience, he understands it, he felt it, it was uh, um, he battled it and he won. He's perfect. He's holy. He endured all that we have endured in this life and continue to. And yet Christ was without sin. It's wonderful news for us. So the way that Jesus is born is highlighting for us the uniqueness of his identity. There is no one like Jesus. No one. Jesus is God with us, Jesus is the very presence and action of God in the world. And he goes on in verse 21 to say, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Call his name Jesus. Many people believe that that 
verse there, verse 21, becomes really the summary of the whole book of Matthew. It's kind of like Acts 1-8, right? You'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then the whole book of Acts is just an unpackaging of how the gospel moves forward from Jerusalem all the way to the city of Rome, to the ends of the earth. This statement, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Most people believe that this really becomes the programmatic, the summary statement of the rest of the book. If you want to know what's the book of Matthew about, it's about Jesus who is saving his people from their sins. That's what this is about. And so we see that there. We see the name is Jesus. Does anybody know what Jesus means? Anybody know what the name Jesus means? Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Right? We name our kids. Well, that's cute. I have no idea what Silas means. Like Sylvanus. The other name in Scripture. What would you like? I don't know. I liked it. What's Evelyn mean? I don't know. What's Annika mean? I don't know be honest. But when people are named in the scriptures, the name carried with a sense of identity, much deeper meaning. So in naming him Jesus, seeing a revelation of his identity, he is the Lord who saves. And in saying that, there it is again, a, a claim that Jesus is God. He's the Lord. He's divine. But also, it's saying that he is Savior. He is Savior. He is the Deliverer. Savior, in in simple terms, could just simply mean to rescue someone from a fate from which he or she cannot deliver him or herself. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saving his people from a fate in which his people are not capable to save uh, themselves from. That's what he's doing. And anytime you see this phraseology, the Lord's saving, especially if you're the Jewish reader, you know the Lord delivering, you know that immediately the mind goes back to Yahweh, the Lord, saving his people, uh, 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 delivering his people out of the hands of Egypt. When you think about a deliverer that has come, you think about Moses, the one who delivered his people from Egypt and brought them out from captivity, brought them on a new, uh, on an exodus through the wilderness to the promised land after 400 years of being enslaved to this Uh, hard labor in Egypt. So I think what's happening here, many people that that have studied this and think on this have have pointed to the fact that in this statement, there is a a, a clue to the reader that this is a new Moses, a new and better Moses, who will lead the people of God on a new exodus. Not from some sort of national oppression 
from a, from a, uh, uh, from a superpower nationalistically, but from the real oppression that humanity faces, and that is sin. That Jesus will lead as the new and better Moses, will lead and deliver his people from that which really and eternally has a clutch on their heart, soul, everything about them, and that is sin. The sinful state that we have before God and the sinful actions that we commit. That Jesus will deliver his people from what really holds them in the deepest part of who they are. Jesus will deliver them from their sins. In a new, better way. He will not save us primarily from poverty. He will not primarily save us from injustices and inequalities. He will not save us from illiteracy, primarily. He will not save us from cancer. He will not save us from sickness, primarily, or corporate greed. All the things that the news and the media and really just society are always craving. We want to be saved from this. We want, these are the major problems of the day. No, those things aren't unimportant. Please don't mishear me. But they're still symptomatic of a deeper issue. And that's our standing before God. That's our, the state of our hearts. Our deeds. Rebellious and idolatrous as they are. And so Jesus comes to deliver us. As God with us. Right? That's really when you bring it together. What Matthew was saying about Jesus. That Jesus is God with us to save us. That's who Jesus is. If you can make that a word. Jesus is God with us to save us. He's here. He's present in the world to bless. He's not the sign. He's the reality. He's all that the scriptures promise. And is bringing this to perfect fulfillment. God is saving his people from their sin. He is saving his people from the death that comes as a result of sin. He is saving us from the captivity of our greatest oppressor, our nature that is broken in desperate need of deliverance. That's what this is showing us. Jesus is God with us to save us. And so we see the emphasis of two things here. We see one that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth. And Jesus is uh, the one who will save us from our sins. Right? We see that that happened. Right? That Jesus came, he lived, he was born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and we know that he lived and then he died, and that he died to save us. On the cross. Those two events uh, are, are there and emphasized by Matthew it, right here in the birth narrative, shaping our expectations, adjusting our expectations. And it would be easy for us to see those two things and not see that they're inherently connected, that one is dependent on the other. We want to shy away from dis, uh, just not associating those two things. Like for me to say something like this. I was born in Syracuse, June 26, 1979. I bleed orange. 
even if we get throttled by Clemson. There's only one person in this room that's glad that Clemson put a, put a whooping on Syracuse last night, and that's my grandpa, because he played for Clemson in the 50s. Don't hate him. He loves Syracuse. No need to hate. I was born June 26, 1979. And at the same time, I'm a pastor. I was born 1979, and I'm a pastor. Those two things aren't related. They're not necessarily, they're true statements, two true statements about me, right? But they're not necessarily related. I wouldn't want us to look at the, the virgin birth and the saving act of God in Christ as two disconnected events. No. They're inherently connected, inseparable, inseparable. You must have a virgin conception. You must have a Holy Spirit uh, conception and a virgin birth if you're going to have salvation from sin. You have to. This is not just a, oh yeah, that's right, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But really what's important is that he lived a perfect life and then he died. No, you've got to have the virgin birth to have the salvation. Because we cannot atone for ourselves. There's no human being, there's no man or woman or anything that has Adam's guilt that can bear the weight of that on their shoulders, that can be a substitute, a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We need a one-of-a-kind, different kind of man. We need a God-man in order to save. We need it. No virgin birth, no salvation. Got to have them both, inextricably linked. And so really what we see here is that the way Jesus was born is, yes, highlighting his unique identity, but it's, it's underscoring the sufficiency of what he is accomplishing for us. Because God must atone for sin. We can't. And yet a man must atone for sin. Right? As Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. We must have God do it. And we must have a man do it. And that is Christ. And if there's anything, that's Jesus, if there's anything that just, that just denies categorically, completely, pluralism, it's this. You can't have any other Savior from sin if you do not have God-man. And there's no other religion that preaches that. So it's not all the same, and it doesn't matter. We need a child conceived of the Holy Spirit born of a virgin, to be the perfect God, perfect man, who is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins, or there is no deliverance. We're still stuck without the virgin birth. So that's what's happening here. Matthew is saying, in this moment, you have the virgin birth, the conception of the Holy Spirit, and at the same time, you are now able to see the sufficiency, the effectiveness of what his death really can accomplish. Salvation, deliverance from sin, transformation of your heart before God. 
Don't miss this. It's both and. And this underscores the sufficiency of what Jesus will accomplish for us. In Jesus, we have both God and man. And thus, we have sufficient Savior. This should just, your confidence in the gospel should skyrocket because of who Christ is. And who Christ is alone. Amen? He alone is this. He alone is the God-man who dies and saves us from our sins. What a gift from God. Let us not miss out on just the sheer providential grace that's taking place, right? Ask for a sign. No thanks. We're good. Uh, We got technology and innovation. We'll figure it out. Well, technology may let us down, but you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm, I'm decent 51% of the time, and I don't do the things that that guy does. So surely God's going to accept me on the basis of my good works. I mean, I'm a nice person. I'm a good guy. Worked a job, paid my taxes, didn't beat my wife, sent my kids to college. I didn't do those things. God's going to accept me, right? So we come to uh, God with our works, our own sense of righteousness. We don't need a sign. God says, you know what? You do. You need more than a sign. You need the thing that it's signifying. You need my son. You need Jesus. Because you're in sin. And you're far from me. And if it stays that way, you will spend eternity Uh, apart from me. But I'm giving the world my son. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. 101 days before Christmas, we're reminded of the greatest gift ever given to the world. An act of grace. Sovereign grace. Here he is. I know you don't want him. I know you think you don't need him. But this is for your deliverance. And the wonderful thing to think about this is that really what is God doing? If Jesus is truly God with us to save us, you see that when God gives Jesus to the world, he's just given himself the greatest gift. Right? He's not a means to something else. God is the gospel, as John Piper says. God is the highest good of the gospel. His highest gift is himself. Here, you need me, and I'm going to give it to you. And his name is Jesus. So Merry Christmas. Here's the gift. Now what do you do with the gift? You've seen the uniqueness of his identity. You've seen the sufficiency of his accomplishment. Those two things should bring about an intensity of response. One-of-a-kind Savior, one-of-a-kind response from us. So what do you do? The scriptures say, you know what you do for a gift? You just receive it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. Humbly receive it. Joyfully receive it. And John says that receiving is believing in his name. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, 
trust, reliance, belief. You just trust in Him. To them He gave the right to become children of God. Back into the lineage. Included into the lineage. Grafted in. Brought in. To those who received Him. The gift. Yes! To those who believed in His name. I believe in His name. I trust in His name. I don't trust in myself anymore. I don't trust in my works. I don't trust in innovation and technology to save. I don't even trust in my logic about what I expect this or that, how life is supposed to have. I don't even trust in that. I just see Jesus for who he is, the perfect God-man, the Savior, the Deliverer, and I trust in him with everything that I am. For all that he is and all that he's done. Maybe today is the day that you receive that gift. You open it. And it radically transforms who you are and how you live. Believe in Jesus. Trust in his person. Because Jesus alone. Is God with you to save you? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, every week we scratch the surface on the truth and the depth of your word. And yet even as we come together, just imperfectly, distracted, tired, we praise you because you're at work even now. As insufficient people, insufficient preachers, come to worship, to trust, you're at work in us and through us. I pray even now that you would just open our eyes to see Christ for all that he is. Open our ears to hear him. Open our hearts to trust him. Thank you that in seeing who we are and the captivity that we knew, you did not leave us to ourselves. We praise you that you came to us in Christ. To deliver us from sin. O oh, Spirit of God, awaken in us a renewed trust, a renewed loyalty, awaken within us desires to serve and to obey, and enable us to rest. Rest in Christ, who has sufficiently and perfectly paid for our sins. And saved us from them. It's in his name. That we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.